So today we are doing something a little bit different. Um, I mean, in principle, we're doing the same thing that we always do, but it's going to be a little bit different than normal. So um, welcome. I guess Sam really did all the introductions, so I'm going to just slip, skip through all these introductions. Disclaimer. Okay. As you guys all know, we are independent entities, and we exist separately from Ratio Christi National, and the things that come out of my mouth do not necessarily represent their opinions. Uh, the things that they say also do not necessarily represent my opinions, so don't conflate those two things, and uh, we will avoid uh, us getting some phone calls from Ratio Christi National about how we are um, doing something or other that is making people mad. So, disclaimer, anything I say may or may not be supported by the national organization. Um, and really, that shouldn't matter anyway. So, today, we are talking about a different sort of topic from what we've been covering. Um, and uh, this is a little bit less kind of logical and argument-based, um, and that is... How do we handle deconversion? Uh, and we'll talk about what this means, and there's a couple different directions that we can address this from. But that is, how do you handle people who are um, ostensibly believers, Christians, who then leave the church? Um, and how do you handle the reasons that they have for leaving the church? Um, and then what that effect has on other people. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so the way that we are going to do this is by watching a series of uh, kind of super cuts of some videos of some relatively well-known deconversion stories. And now, these are not necessarily a representative sample. That's actually really important, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but these are some, some common ones, and they have some important things that, um, that I think are worth talking about. Now, just as a word of warning, uh, these are, like we're going to have like 12 to 15 minutes worth of videos here. So we're going to be kind of going through these. Um, all of these are like clips of like 90-minute videos. So a couple things there. One, try not to lose too much interest through the videos because they, they tell an important story. Uh, but also, don't think that these videos are like the whole story. I had to edit them to get them into a reasonable, something we could reasonably watch in a few minutes. Um, so just do bear that in mind um, that we aren't getting the whole story, even from what you know the published original content was. So who knows who these people are? Okay, probably everybody, right? Um, who's aware of their deconversion stories? Okay, a fair number of people, but not everybody. So. For those of you who don't know, this is Rhett and Link from YouTube fandom, fame, fame and fortune, um, typically in like the, the top four or five YouTube channels, um, uh, specifically Good, Good Mythical Morning. Um, they uh, were actually at one time, obviously we're talking about deconversion, so at one time they were believers. But more than that, they actually... Um, were full-time on staff with Campus Crusade in like or 2000 or something like that, uh, around that time, uh, 2001, 2002, something like that. 
Um, and so, you know, for a time at least, we're professionally, you know, Christian, uh, engaged in Christian ministry. Uh, but they, they eventually left that. So we're going to listen to each of their stories in very abbreviated forms, and then we're going to listen to one more example um, that actually Caleb has, uh, had turned me on to, uh, which has some similar overtones. Uh, and then we're going to talk uh, you know, a little bit more systematically about some of the ideas, but, but let's start with this. Uh, I met some people who were really interested in wow. the book of Genesis and were specifically what you call a young earth creationist. I never thought about this. My parents didn't really care much about these particular issues, right? It wasn't something that like we grew up being taught, but it was, I was like, hmm, I haven't really thought about this. Let me look into this. But long story short, when I looked into this, I basically learned that no matter what scientific discipline you start from, the evidence points overwhelmingly to a world that is very old, billions of years old to be specific. Basically, this was learning that there was all this evidence that kind of pointed pretty clearly to the earth being old and then realizing that there was a really large contingent of Christians who just denied that and didn't believe that. It was alarming, but I was still a Christian. I mean, I wasn't, the core of my Christian belief was still very much intact. Still believe that the Bible was completely true. And I believe that there was a pretty easy way to reconcile this old earth view, they call it, with a literal interpretation of Genesis and the Bible. And of course, I still knew that evolution wasn't true. I knew evolution hadn't happened, right? Because I, what I knew is that Adam and Eve had to be real. Um, Adam and Eve had to be real because so much comes from them being real. That's the fall of, uh, that's where the fall happens. And the fall is the reason that we have original sin. And original sin is why we need a savior. It was like, you can't get rid of that story. Of course, I had never looked at the evidence revolution. I had, I had read books about it written by people who didn't believe in it. Then in 2006, I read a book called The Language of God by Francis Collins. Uh, the subtitle of the book is A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. Collins starts talking about the undeniable evidence for evolution. Evidence that humans evolved from a common ancestor with apes. And I was like, what, 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 hold up, y'all. What? This guy's a Christian? What? Who, who, who? The main thing that this did for me is I had been told a lot of things about evolution. And now I was questioning those things because I had been told that there's no, there's no real evidence. This is a desperate attempt to try to come up with some harebrained theory to just explain things. And I'm like, but this DNA stuff is pretty freaking conclusive. Essentially... Every criticism of evolution that I had held on to to justify my unwillingness to believe in it turned out to be a misconception or a misrepresentation of the facts. But I kind of was just faced with this that evolution was by far the best explanation for what we, what we actually see in the real world. But the thing that that did for me is I had placed a lot of faith, not just in God, but in these people who helped me understand why I believed what I believed. And all of a sudden, those people I've been trusting in, I began to doubt that I had been shown the truth or told the truth about other things, right? I was very unsettled, but then I was like, well, hold up. I mean, Francis Collins, the whole point of the book yeah. is that he believes in God because of what he's seen in the DNA. And he's a Christian. He's an evangelical Christian. 
and he believes in evolution. But what this did, again, I just felt like this doubt was kind of creeping beyond the point of creation and it was creeping into the Old Testament itself because that's the way the story goes. You got Adam and Eve and then you got a story that begins with them and moves all the way down to Abraham and Moses and then David. You know, you, you got, it, it's all part of a, a system. But when I really looked into it, I started realizing that that's not true. Why is there no Egyptian historical re record of the Israelites' captivity? Why is there no archaeological evidence of the Exodus? Um, why does the modern archaeological evidence call Joshua's conquest of Canaan into question? And those are just a few things. But there are some pretty major events that all of a sudden... I was like, no, we, this isn't well supported. This isn't, this isn't outside of the Bible. These things are not well supported. So I was, I was in crisis at this point. Here's, but here's what I said. I said, does this Old Testament stuff really matter? Like, is this really what this is all about? Isn't the important thing Jesus? Uh, and this is when I adopted what I'm going to call California Christianity. I was like, man, in this kind of crazy world with people trying to be all about themselves and this place that's all about making it an entertainment business, I've got my faith, I've got my relationship with Jesus, I've got my Christian community, and I don't have it all figured out, and it is gray, but it feels so true, and it proves itself out to be true in my daily life. I tried living like this. I ran into a few problems. These questions that continue to linger, and the question... The place that I had sort of put a barrier around and said, we're not going there. I'm not going to go to Jesus. I'm not going to question Jesus, but I just couldn't help myself. But I took a second to go one layer deeper and to look at the answers to the Christian answers that I had been given all my life. And that was when I realized that this Jesus thing was very, very messy. Essentially, in the end, by far to me personally, the most compelling and seemingly reasonable view was that the Gospels appear to be a mix of religious propaganda as well as actual history. This was way more unsettling than anything that had happened so far because this was Jesus. This was the core of everything. This is who my relationship was with and all of a sudden I've got very serious doubts about, uh, about him. At this point I was like, okay, you know what? I think this is probably where faith comes in. And this is when uh, I ran into some problems. So uh, the first thing was, how does this differentiate me from any other faith on earth, right? Now I'm just saying that I'm just gonna have faith that things are real, damn the evidence. So how does that make me any different, right? Um, and ultimately this kind of faith felt a little cowardly to me, to be honest. This was a torturous place for me, right? And I was there for a very long time. There was lots of praying. There was lots of reading the Bible. I didn't want to leave this thing, man. I, this was my life. This, was, this defined everything for me. This, is, this was the foundation of my marriage. This was the foundation of the way I was raising my kids. I didn't want it to go away. But the major shift for me occurred when I asked a question I had never asked. I'd been very, very afraid to ask this question. And that was, what if I'm wrong? It's like, let's just consider what it would mean if you were wrong. It led to a few more questions that I'd always been afraid to ask myself. If I don't have to believe that God ordered his chosen people to slaughter men, women, and children by the thousands, then why would I? If I don't have to believe that anyone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, i.e. 
the majority of people who have ever lived are going to spend eternity being literally tortured in a fire, then why, no pun intended, in the hell would I believe that? Um, I did go back and I re read through success. my journals. But I want to read an excerpt from this one journal entry from this my junior year. So on January 20th, 1999. Lord, I'm frustrated about us. I just feel guilty that it's not clicking like I'm just bad or wrong or lazy or something. I'm tired of feeling pressure and guilt to spend time with you. Lord, I would quit trying altogether if I didn't know how stupid and mindless that would be. And it wasn't just that journal entry, like the, the vast majority of my journal entries uh, over those years, it was, it was actually heartbreaking. Uh, they, were, they were filled, and I'm talking like 80% of mm. anything I would write. It was filled with me apologizing for disappointing God. I didn't really appreciate I, or recall that internal struggle that I was having. I'd kind, of, I'd kind of forgotten that until I went back and started reading through the journals and I was a little bit shocked. Mm. You know, when you read Francis Collins, The Language of God in 2006, I also read that. And I was like, yeah, it's like, I'm convinced in the validity of evolution. And I remember, I remember an un un unintended consequence of reading that book was I just had this sense, and we discussed it, that, that there was an island with God on it and it was shrinking as science discovered more and more. And it would le ultimately lead to a place where whoop, the, the waters of science would cover the top of the island and there would be no more God. I was also developing a growing spiritual disillusionment. And there were two parallel paths for me. Um, one was um, the intellectual path. And then the other parallel path was the experiential, what was happening to me in my heart and my, my circumstance. But then the experiential parallel path was ever, ever since graduating from college and leaving Campus Crusade, as a student, like I got, we, Christian and I got involved in a church. It was a small church. So they had an immediate need for someone to help lead the music. And because I'd done that at Campus Crusade, they asked me to do it. I was, I was reluctant. Uh, and increasingly more over time, th there were a lot of places that I was, I guess I was having an internal existential crisis, you know, but I, I, I remember it being very palpable every Sunday morning because I would get on stage and I would, I would, I would pray. Yet I found it impossible, virtually impossible for me to be able to connect with God in that way through music on a Sunday morning. And I remember I would try harder and harder. I would like clamp my eyes shut and, and really concentrate on the words that I was singing that were moving people emotionally and spiritually out there. I remember after church every Sunday, I would tell Christy, I'm just, I'm not who they think I am. They think I'm clamping my eyes shut because I'm having such a meaningful experience, but I'm clamping my eyes shut because I can't find anything. I, I felt fed up with this phony feeling every week. 
I was very skeptical by this point because of that parallel path. I, I no longer believed in the Bible as the inerrant word of God. Um, again, you presented a lot of these resources. It's not like, I don't want to say, I don't want to go through all of that. Yeah. Um, I was, I think in retrospect, I was slowly crossing the boundary from belief to disbelief. Just like you get, it's a very permeable place. And it's not just, for me, it wasn't just like this one thing happened, but I just started to realize one day I, I, I had, I must have overnight experienced some subtle shift that I was just ever so slightly on the other side of a boundary. And I was looking at it from the other side and my growing list of problems with the Bible and evangelicalism, all, all of a sudden, like all, all of that lit, those problems that, that popped up over my whole life to this point, they had much simpler explanations. I was living in this world where if science conflicts with the Bible, the Bible's right. So I just let that accumulate in the back. Uh, but what it did, of course, was create some cognitive dissonance as we went. It, I, my mind, there was this itch now in my brain of like, well, those scientists were actually making some sense to you. So fast forward to a time when that project was done and I was uh, waiting for a next project in the visual effects industry that I was working on. Um, I had a little bit of time. I'm like, well, I'm going to go. My pastors and my teachers are also sure that the evidence is great. So I'm just going to read it for myself so I can get rid of this scratch in the back of my brain. I'll just learn what they know so that I can be equally as confident as they mm -hmm. are. And so I look it up online and the best-selling creation books by far are the Ken Ham Answers books. There's three volumes, there's four now. These are the quick reads. You can get all the answers you want. So I order those, great. I'm going to have, this problem's going to go away. The brain scratch is going to be gone. So I start reading them. I tear into them when they get here and even though I believe what Ken Ham believes, these answers seemed terrible. Hmm. Um, they seemed flimsy, even though I agreed with his conclusions. And that was troubling because then it was like, well, how good are, like, if this is the best that younger creationism has to offer, why is everyone so sure? And the one that really sunk it, where I literally had just dropped the book and it fell to the floor, <laughs> was um, how did kangaroos get to Australia? You know, did, did they really jump from Mount Ararat? somehow uh, and leave literally no trace and get to Australia. So in the Kenham book, it says that kangaroos, because of the, in the flood, there would have been lots of carnage. There probably were lots of logs floating around. So yeah, the kangaroos somehow jumped from Ararat to the tip of India. And then they, from there, for some reason, they jumped on logs and the logs floated them to the continent and happily ever after, no kangaroos appeared anywhere else. Like, and, and I just dropped the book. I'm like, that can't be the best possible answer to this question that they jumped on logs. Right. And so from there, I said, you know what? Let me at least read what these secular people say. And, and you know, went from there. Where are you in this? Are you in San Francisco at this point? No, I'm in Calgary at that point. Okay. Like post-San Francisco or? Post-San Francisco, Francisco, yeah. Yeah. And up until reading these books from, from Answers and Genesis, up until that point, you were fully committed to your faith and, and looking at ministry, working in ministry? Working in ministry up until, yeah. you know, I was still, although it was this weird thing where I started having other people pray because I was feeling really guilty that I was having doubts. And I felt like I couldn't pray in front of people anymore when, when some of this doubty stuff was happening. I don't know if that's a common experience or not. Very, I've had this sure. conversation with Luke. Okay, so one of the things that we're going to do 
a little bit differently today is that the rest of what we're going to do is really mainly focused on having a discussion. Um, so before I you know, start talking up here about things, I want to hear what your thoughts are. So you guys just listened to like 15 minutes of, of cut together videos. What do you think? Like what, what's, your, what's your initial thought about these types of stories? I definitely feel like most, most atheists don't want to become atheists. They like try to keep themselves Christian for as long as they can looking for answers and they just continuously get more and more disappointed until they just give up and like, oh, I can't ignore the evidence. That seems to be a common thread. Sure. Yeah, so I, I, I agree. At least most of the people who tell these stories, um, you know, those who are actually like seriously part of a, a Christian community, usually leaving isn't easy, right? So uh, you, you, sometimes people will falsely... Uh, We'll kind of write these stories off because oh, they, they, they just wanted to get out of the you know whatever they're in, but usually it actually comes at a cost to have to leave you know especially if you're you know, you're married with children and you're you know you're you're giving up and uh, you're giving up things right um, beyond just the beliefs. What else? What do you guys think? Well, I mean, I don't know if this is typical of all the examples you do, but it was predominantly kind of. Uh, young Earth creationists, that's how Genesis is read by the scholars, by every theologian. This is somehow a critical part of Christianity. Um, seemed more important, at least, than I would have thought. Um, yeah, I mean, the sample is probably a little bit skewed, but, so, um, so, but there are lots of people who, yeah. who follow that path. Yeah, so there are a lot of people that follow that path, and from what I understand, uh, it's because... Uh, the main reason I think that that is um, often emphasized is because a lot of those, um, all, not all of those, but a lot of those groups that hold those ideas have uh, very strict and set fundamentalist ideas and world, or sorry, very strict worldviews like set out where it's it's this thing or it's nothing, and so if any point of any part of those ends up getting um, challenged, then that can often lead to big, massive deconstructions, and then because of it's also this very, like, it's very strict and controlling, those people oftentimes when they are no longer in those groups can, will express a need to uh, help other people who are in those groups that they feel are being overly controlled. That's my understanding of it. I'm not 100% certain if that so, fully yeah, matches it. Kind of like a, it, there does seem to be at least in some cases, a trend of having these kind of strict, rigid interpretations of things where it's very, things that maybe ought not be black and white are treated as if they're black and white. What else do you guys think? It seems like there's a fine line between Christianity or, or any religion as emotional support um, and gathering together to to engage with a similar set of beliefs that you both believe in and take comfort in. Um, so that might be a more positive way of viewing things, but then if you're on your way out or if you're out, so to speak, then what that looks like in your rearview mirror is emotional bondage either to um, 
that to, to God or to your community. Uh, so you're saying that sometimes, uh, sometimes a story like a deconversion story is not a strict telling of what happened, but a reflection based on your current your current position. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it, it completely depends on which way you're looking. So how, let's say you guys had to talk to somebody who's coming from a position like this, what would you do? I'd probably go back to, I guess it's, it's hard a little bit for me because my viewpoint, like I was raised in a very fundamentalist, uh, full that church. And then uh, when I came to not really so much evolution, but yeah, maybe the earth isn't that old or anything. I had church members who handed me like counterpoints and they did four different views of interpreting Genesis or things like that. So, and I've always had truth as a very high regard. So whether or not something's true is always more high priority um, than the emotional aspect to it. And there's definitely problems in here that are very emotionally charged that I'm not the best at dealing with. Uh, but I think I would probably go to more like, okay, uh, you know, addressing some of those fundamental apologetics things we normally do, like maybe starting with Genesis and is this really how Christianity has always historically adopted it? Is that the fundamentals of Christianity or going to some of the different things and the uh, historical parts that he mentioned on Jesus? Like, let's okay for a moment, let's just drop an errancy. Do you still have Christ? Do you still have like a fundamental tenet of Christianity or things like that? It's still how I would start, but it might not be the appropriate technique for different people. So I, I, I think the very first thing that you, know, you said how I would do with a person you know, type of story. The very first thing is to figure out sort of where, where they are like in in that whole process. Because you heard what what the, the first guy Rhett was saying. Like at one point he was looking up books, he was like actively looking for stuff. But sometimes people, uh, this is true whether it's deconversion or even conversion. Any time you change your mind. There's like an active seeking part, but then there's kind of like a, no, I've kind of made up my mind on this thing, and I kind of don't really want to talk about it right now. Or maybe there's a, maybe I could be wrong, but I don't want to talk about it now for some other reason. You know, th these are very e e emotional type of uh, situations, and it's not always the most appropriate to just immediately start rattling off, you know, responses to all the objections, especially if that person isn't convinced that or if, that, if you don't have the sort of relationship uh, uh, capital with a person to do that, um, they may think, well, you're just trying to get me back in your social group and, and shut that off. Uh, and, and I mean, that's not even unique to, to, to these types of people. It's, it's all types of, you know, any time you switch or change or move a social group or something uh, to, to, to that effect or, or to a certain degree. This actually happened with my family. Uh, my parents ended up leaving a very fundamentalist church wrote a letter to the pastor and left. And then the assistant pastor tried to start debating my dad. He's like, no, you don't get it. We wrote you a letter. We're, we're not here to debate. We're, we're, we're past that. We'll be your friend, but we're not going to debate this issue. Yeah, you have to be able to recognize when the decision has already been made, right? I think that's clear. If you guys actually watch the whole series of, of the, the podcasts from Rhett and Link, that's definitely where, where Rhett is, right? He's He's gone through the steps. He's made, like, he knows what he thinks now and you're not going to be able to argue with him uh, because he's already gone through that and he's come to the conclusion right um and so you know he's not at a point where he's going to turn around <clears throat> so you do have to you have to understand i think 
when a you know when that's the right tack to take or not. I'm just curious. Why would you assume that there's no turning around or that they kind of a point that you don't they don't want to talk about it? Because I guess if well, it were me, I'd always said, want. Like he said, the trick is oh, getting yeah. So you have to act. Like you have to, to you have to find out from the person where they are, right? And and be sensitive to what they're saying, um, and not ignoring that, right? So that kind of makes me think of. This might be a bit out of the realm of what we've already discussed, and I'm pulling on my prior knowledge. But there are three broad views of religious epistemology, I guess, which is experientialism, which is I have my experience and you have your experience, and um, we can't really have too much of a common ground unless we're part of the same community and engaging in the same worship behaviors, I guess. Um, with presuppositionalism, you might say, uh, well, we can't really talk about the evidence because um, you've left our religious community, so you're no longer in the proper context, and you um, and you have you don't hold to the correct presuppositions, and it, it, a whole bunch of reasons why. Before you get into any arguments, you can no longer have a productive conversation about religious belief, and then evidentialism. But it seems like all three of them have their own unique difficulties of finding that common ground to do anything at all. Um, and I think that I would definitely want to default to something like evidence and arguments, but what you guys are just mentioned is sometimes that part of the discussion is over, so then my question would be, what does the common ground look like to meet and have a productive relationship with that person? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a different question, right? There's a difference between having a relationship with somebody and evangelizing them, right? Those ought not to be separate, but they often are, right? <clears throat> Maybe separate concepts for the same end point. So I guess the first thing I would like to point out, just for reference, so specifically in the, the video from Rhett, uh, he brought up a number of specific challenges that, that he had come across, right? I would like to point out that I think without exception, we have dealt with every single one of those challenges here in Ratio Christi, and we have a YouTube video on each of them. Um, some of these are from this semester, which means those links are not live yet. I mean, if you have the link, you can go there, but... Um, but it's not public yet. Sometime in the next few months, we'll put them all up week by week. Um, but yeah, we, we've covered all these topics. And I think actually we've covered them in a very even-handed way, definitely not you know, skewing towards a rigid fundamentalist perspective. We've tried to cover a whole spectrum. Um, so if you guys are curious about some of those specific questions, uh, we have dealt with them at, literally in some cases ad nauseum. Like, you might get a little bit more uh, than you were bargaining for if you go watch them. But some of them are very good. Um, so just reference. Now, we're not going to spend the rest of the meeting today, however little time we have, addressing the specific apologetics questions. Because we're going to deal with this bigger question. <clears throat> and if anybody wants these links, we'll, we, can, we can send those links out. 
for those uh, that aren't uh, for those that aren't public yet. Otherwise, the ones that are public, you can just find Russia Christie Tamu YouTube channel, uh, and they're all listed in order, uh, easy to find. Now, there are I think basically two different things that we can talk about in this topic. So one, which is what we were just talking about, is how do we address the deconvert themselves, right? How do you interact with them? Now, actually, that's not what I want to primarily think about. I mean, we're going to continue thinking about that. But I think maybe the secondary question is more important in our context, which is how do you address those who are convinced of the truth or falsehood of Christianity by something like a deconversion story? Right? Because it's one thing to be Rhett McLaughlin and to have examined all the evidence and then found it lacking. It's another thing to watch a 90-minute YouTube video where they talk about examining the evidence and then having, using that as your, your epistemological basis for making a decision about whether Christianity is true. Right? Those are two very different things. Um, and so that's, I think, maybe the more interesting question is what is the evidential value of a story? Now think about this. This is really important because might we sometimes in Christianity use stories in the same way from, you know, but, you know, for evangelical purposes? Right. I mean, what is a testimony if it's not exactly the same thing as this, but usually not 90 minutes long, right? Yes, yes. But, but think about this. If that is a legitimate way, like if you giving your testimony to somebody and then them responding just based on your testimony and becoming a Christian, if that's legitimate, isn't somebody watching this and then agreeing, like deciding to never consider Christianity, isn't that also like logically speaking a legitimate step to take? I mean, just think about it. It's the same, it's the same type of argument, right? It, it, it's sort of like if, if you go through life and you have a set of experiences, but depending on your point in life, you may or may not have the, um, you may not be circumspect or mature enough to interpret those experiences one way or another. But then somebody comes along and they have a very similar story or a story that hit, hits them on several key points, and all of a sudden, all of your, it, it feels like you have a new lens for interpreting your experience. And I think that can be valid. Um. Well, I can tell you that I really enjoyed listening specifically to Rhett's story because I, a lot of things that I've gone through mirror some of the things that, that he did with exactly the opposite um, conclusions. But I mean, like the, the books that Rhett read, I read almost in the same order even. Um, like, uh, they're common books. Lots of people have read them. But the, the point is, ha, you know, th listening to somebody else's story that you resonate with in some way can be helpful. But that's not exactly what we're talking about, right? Examples of evangelism usually aren't like Paul giving his testimony. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's, giving, he's making a case, right? He's giving evidence for Christianity. But I think when he... You know, when he's on his missionary journeys, he's evangelizing. He's not giving his testimony. Well, he does say stuff like, and I was... Uh, Jesus, 
Well, he I gives his story. I, I'm, the, I'm, I'm called as the last of the apostles. I was apostles once persecuting under these you these circumstances. And yeah. And, and, and if not, even if yeah. that's not evidence in and of itself, he's at least contextualizing everything else he says. Yeah. But, yeah, I think it's very popular to, to think that giving your testimony is a replacement for actually giving the gospel message. You know what I'm saying? So I don't agree with you that we should become a Christian based on someone's testimony. So I don't, so, you know. So conversely, so, you also don't think you should no. ignore Christianity because of somebody's testimony, anti-testimony. Right. So I, 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 I think it's insightful and it's something that, you know, it's interesting. But I, I don't agree that someone should convert to Christianity based on someone's personal testimony. They, they, it's got to be the gospel. Right? It's got to be. So. I mean, yeah. I think I kind of agree along those lines. Just because the reality is any view you have of anything whatsoever, there are going to be people who have decided to reject that view. And there are going to be people who have accepted this view. That's true for, like, every religion ever. That's true for every ideology, every thought process ever, um, so on and so forth. Now, you might be able to play, like, a numbers game of, oh, we've had more people join our view than have left our view or whatever, but you have times back in history where more people were convinced of one view than another, and popularity doesn't make <coughs> logical truth. So I still, that's where I've always felt like that's a weak argument, only because, you know, truth is not dependent on how many people have or have not believed it. Truth is not dependent on how many people have chosen to accept it or reject it. And so any, basically anything any religion could say or anything any view could say to support its view that applies to every other view that's exactly opposite must somehow be not truth or not sufficient evidence for a belief. Perhaps it's not a black and white issue. It could be hearing somebody's testimony or hearing about the lives of saints. I'm speaking for our Catholics who are sadly uh, <laughs> They're not absent. Here? Not present. <laughs> absent. Uh, that could be the nth step in a given conversion process, and it's valid after what you were saying. It's not sufficient, but it's valid after n minus one steps were taken towards forming some kind of a belief. So it's part of a process, but it's not. And I, I think I think you know you have, how would you respond? I would say that we have a we have a bond with uh, people who are examining their beliefs, who are you know truly like Rhett and and Paul and uh, Link, who, who, took, who took seriously that they were going to examine what they believe. And, you know, that's what we should be doing. And so, I mean, I think we have common ground with them to say, I think it's a good thing that you set out to, you know, now we could disagree with their conclusions or who they got their, their information from or, or, their, or their expectations in, you know, what their deal breakers were, how they came about in the beginning, but I mean, I, I think there's common there. There's we should commend them that, yeah, we we really actually do think people should examine their beliefs carefully, right? So maybe maybe they de deconvert and get down to to nothing where they are now, and maybe maybe you know then they can build back up. Somewhat, you know. I mean, I, I don't know. So, what do you guys think about the the theological framework to think about deconversion? 
It, so, I mean, it, did, did that pop into your heads at all as you're thinking about these stories? So, you know, roughly speaking, there are these kind of two camps in Christianity, right? The, the Reformed camp and the, the Wesleyan-Arminian camp, right? And they have different views in general on um, what it means uh, to be saved and, and if that is a permanent permanent status or not. So what, what do you guys think? Does this have any, you know, we're kind of shifting back again towards the deconvert themselves. Does this have anything, does this, is this important? Like, does, does this matter to thinking about this problem? I, mean, I think from a Christian perspective, yes, because you need to have some sort of, well, what do you do with them personally for your own faith and on your own intellectual level? Um, but I'm not so sure it has anything to do with talking to a deconvert themselves or dealing yeah, with them I agree with they that. are. Yes. Yeah. I'm thinking more yeah, internally, an internal discussion. So, I think okay. one way to look at this is just if, if you take a step back and consider, I forgot to mention it earlier, that you know, people convert and deconvert from everything. Um, and no matter what point of view you take, you, you kind of need like a story to explain that phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, so like for example, if someone converts from Islam to Buddhism, you know, if if you are if you're a non-religious person, you need an explanation for that. And even if you're a Christian, you still need an explanation for that. Um, and so, you know, if, if you're a non-Christian and you see people that leave Christianity, then you have a story to say. Oh, well, they looked at the evidence and they found the truth. And if you're a Christian looking at it, then you kind of need a story for that phenomenon too. Well, oh, they uh, just wanted to sin or whatever story. I don't know. lot of different sort of rationalizations like that because it's a phenomenon that's in your worldview you need some explanation for, for why it is I don't think that it explains I think it's unsatisfactory for people to say there's this complex uh, human psychological phenomenon known as conversion and deconversion uh, or even reconversion and eh, it just happens no one knows why so you know I think <clears throat> I think uh where this hits home for me is thinking about, you know, what is the real argument that's being made? Um, and I think we kind of came to the conclusion that just saying, uh, just kind of following a deconvert because they're a deconvert and you like their story, that's not very good evidential value. However, there is potentially, um, and I, I think this is, um, you know, maybe Rhett and Link's position because they come from a more reformed background. <clears throat> Uh, there is this idea where, uh, in the subtext, they're making an argument, which is that you know we experienced the Christian experience to its fullest, and we're you know fully and completely members of the body of Christ, and we walked away. Therefore, you know at least the reformed version of Christianity is false, because. Preservation, is, uh, preservation of the saints says that, you know, th that can't happen, right? And so they, they do address that actually rather directly in their videos if you watch the entire thing. Um, but you, you see what the argument there is, is that there's a central claim of Christianity that if you're in, if you're really in, then you can't, like, you're not going to get out. You're not going to, you're not going to turn your, turn your back on it. Doubt is accompanied by existential dread. 
Because you're like, if I'm doubting, am I a Christian? Am I a Christian at all? Well, and that's the the common retort, right? Yeah. Which is, well, obviously, if you if you're an if you're an apostate, it's because you were never legitimately elect, right? You're not a real Christian. <clears throat> yep. You're faking. I think they said people had said said that to them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not yeah, helpful. I mean, they, they specifically say that people gave yeah. them both of those two answers. Right. You were never a Christian, and oh, well, you'll come back eventually, yeah. because right. obviously you were elect, and mm-hmm. you, you can't <coughs> not come back. Yeah. <clears throat> probably is not very helpful in the conversation, right? <clears throat> so the fact is, we, don't, we can't know what somebody's you know, status with God is, so why speculate? Here. Reverse Samson. <laughs> it's part of his brand now, so if he cuts his hair, then he's losing millions. I don't know how much it's worth. Lots. Tens of millions. So I guess we're coming up on time, right? Does that mean no? So let's let's think about this a little differently. Now one of the things that I didn't bring up, and, and because uh, these three videos didn't really hit on this, um, partially because it just wasn't, this thread wasn't that strong, that I'm, this thread that I'm about to introduce wasn't that strong in those videos, and partly because I just, the way I edited them was to tell this particular part of the story. But there's a, there's a parallel thread that runs, that is very common in deconversion stories, specifically, uh, in the ex-evangelical movement, the deconversions from evangelical Christianity, which focuses on um, a lot of the uh, social and political baggage of specifically contemporary American evangelical uh, subculture, right? <clears throat> so there's a lot of people that complain about um, you know, LGBTQ issues or Donald Trump or masks and vaccines or um, Republicans and Confederate statues and race relations and all these other things that uh, many of which arguably the evangelical church has not handled particularly well, um, at least portions of the evangelical church, right? Um, And so uh, in many of these conversion stories in general, this is an important thread. You know, how can Christianity claimed to be a religion of hope and freedom, and yet, um, ha- you know, support um, you know racial uh, situations that definitely don't support freedom, for example, um, or or whatever the particular issue is. <clears throat> and uh, there's a, an interesting way to think about this, um, which is called disenculturation. Have any of you guys ever heard of this concept? So uh, this is actually a technique that is used in Bible translation, which is that in order to effectively communicate the gospel, you have to um, kind of separate it from cultural elements that the reader doesn't understand. So when you read the Bible, this is, especially if you read like the NIV, this is going to be done you know, quite significantly for you. Um, there will be a lot of idioms in there that have been replaced um, with something that makes sense to you. Um, a lot of Bible translators do this in a much more extreme way, um, I guess, to kind of simplify the message down to its core. 
Um, but the idea is that you can strip a message away from a cultural trappings that surround it. So maybe instead of deconverting, we should start to distance the gospel from things like politics and, you know, some of these things that trip people up, right? I think we can all agree that if somebody becomes a Christian, it doesn't really matter what political party they're affiliated with, right? Like, the key thing is being a Christian. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people, right? And I, I, that's, you know, I think that's just part of human psychology. Um, but if we can do that, maybe we could take a step beyond some of the, the some of these types of you know, ex-evangelical things that we're experiencing. What do you think, Sam? I imagine some resistance to that idea would come from the precedent set in Europe, the idea that um, if you compare Europe to America, you might think of America as having a much more uh, successful and thriving Christian culture and community. And so the idea of, of separating from that cultural context. So because Europeans are, are irreligious laws. and they believe in, believe in climate change, obviously if we believe in climate change, we're going to become irreligious. Yes. Precisely. I think one of the biggest it's challenges um, with divorcing the idea of politics and religion uh, that is going to um, inhibit the acceleration of the process is the the fact that we have political parties and political figures that run on the basis of quote-unquote religion um, and so like I, I saw a Trump interview one time um, and he said I forgot the pastor's name um, but he was talking about how you know he doesn't need to Trump just lives a sinless life so he doesn't need to ask for forgiveness um, and uh, the pastor the great fill-in-the-blank name um, he was my pastor, you know, and then they showed a book that the pastor had written, and it's like, you know, like some prosperity gospel crap, where it's like, you know, you can work harder and earn your way up, right? Um, and so we have these toxic ideas that are kind of laced into our society, um, and we have people that are willing to exploit those ideas um, for personal profit and for personal power um, and public interest. And so it's a it's a very grueling tactic because... Like I, I personally, I have I have family that. Awesome. Uh, I have I have family that has left Christianity because of issues like this, uh, and it breaks my heart because, as Christians, we, like if if you're a Christian in the room and you know someone like that, your goal is to live so differently that they notice. You know what I'm saying? Like watching Donald Trump or like some other politician on TV be the embodied American Christian is stupid. Um, so live differently. Live like you actually have a God inside of you, right? Because you do. Um, and the Holy Spirit, like, working through you and live like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, and that's what shows change and that's what shows that difference in living. Um, and then that, I feel like, can tie back to the testimony idea because with the idea of a testimony, like, trusting someone's, like, oh, this is my story of how God changed my life. Like, oh, great, cool, whatever. Um, I think it gains more traction. The testimony gains more traction when you see the fruit of it. And so I was living this way. I met Jesus, and then my life changed. And now you, as my friend, <laughs> see this. 
You know what I'm saying? Or you as my family members see this. Um, and then I think if you call that as a bare bones minimum for accepting a testimony, you should flip that back on the deconversion testimony and look for the fruit of a deconversion um, and see how that improves the way we interact as a society and improves the way that you know you grow in um, loving others and in being a solid person. I think one thing I'd just chime in with the political stuff that I think is self-evident, but uh, there are some things you can't entirely ignore because like either scripture speaks upon this issue or that issue. So, I mean, abortion's one that comes up a lot and you know, you have to at least have some, well, either it's not human or you have to round out your faith in some cogent way to reconcile <coughs> X, Y, Z or um, LGBTQ issues as well with passages like things in Romans and other issues in various parts of the Bible. Those are more apologetics questions that come up or like slavery was once in the Bible and how do you deal with that? Uh, I don't I don't know that we can entirely separate ourselves from the issue only because for a lot of people it would be the logical things that they would feel like that's inconsistent in the view to hold. So to wrap up, <clears throat> I have a couple of uh, takeaways for you. These are my own personal musings so you can uh, take what you will from them. Um, but I think the first thing is that if you're talking about a deconversion story, the first thing that you shouldn't do, and just my personal opinion, is try to dismiss it, right? So first of all, try to take a deconversion story at face value and try to understand it a little bit, okay? Now, that being said, deconversion stories are stories, not histories, right? When we tell stories about ourselves, those stories are as much, if not more, influenced by where we are now than by where we've been, right? If by some miracle, Rhett were to become a Christian again, the whole story is going to change of necessity because it's going to be framed in a different way. That's just the way we are as humans. That's the way we tell stories. We tell stories that have a flow, that have a, that have a narrative to them that leads to something, right? Um, and by necessity, we can't be neutral when we tell stories. So a story is always going to be it's, it's, it's never going to be neutral. It's never going to be just cold facts. And that's not the fault of anybody. That's just the reality. Um, don't just accept somebody else's experience as good evidence for what you are going to believe. Because that is dangerous. Right? What, happens, what would happen if you had been converted to Christianity by Rhett McLaughlin and then later on you hear this? Right? Now, the foundation of your faith was somebody else's testimony that was false. Right? You, you have to go beyond that. You have to have more than just somebody's story. And the same thing goes for deconversion you, or, you know, or, or a decision not to become a Christian. You can't just rest yourself on somebody else's experience. Um, again, because you don't actually have that experience. You don't know what that is, and experiences can be all kinds of spurious, which is one of the messages of these, of these deconversion stories. They all said that they had experiences that they now think were, were, were spurious. Uh, and lastly, um, un, unfounded, especially unfounded, kind of rigid certainty or, uh, you know, about certain beliefs 
or, or holding to an unreasonable standard is a good way to set yourself up for failure. In reality, most things, even things within Christianity, are not certain. They may be very likely. You may have good evidence for them, but it's not certain. There's always a gray area. There's always a fuzzy edge. Um, to an extent, yes. And, and most importantly, when you start, you know, when you decide that you need to change your mind about something, in most cases, there is a Christian position that already, you know, there are Christian people that already hold that position because this, it's not certain, right? And so if you let yourself get fooled into believing that some very strict, rigid set of beliefs is Christianity, maybe a set of belief that's only been be believed by one small denomination of Christians for the last 10 years, you know, you can be outside of that and still be well within the fold of historic Christianity that's existed for 2,000 years. Uh, so, so don't let those things be, don't let things that aren't so important and that aren't so certain become standards for certainty and truth. Um, with that, I think we are done. Thank you guys for participating and contributing to the discussion. Um, and I highly encourage you to check out these videos uh, for yourself. The Rhett and Link series, there's actually a total of six videos that you can watch. Two that lead up to their, their anti-testimonies, um, and then two that they did a year later. Um, and if you really want to kind of struggle through and think about this, it's a great way to do it is, is you know, this long format discussion that these guys are doing. Um, but be prepared to, you know, have to seriously think about it because it's not necessarily an easy process to, to understand. So. Continue to join us at Revs for continued discussion of food.